You know, a war correspondent is to journalism what a Navy SEAL is to the American military. Or you could say, a war correspondent is to journalism what an emergency room doctor is to the medical profession. It's reporting on steroids, special ops journalism. A reporter gets embedded with the troops. He's wearing camo and a flak jacket and a helmet. He's working in the line of fire. His job is risky. It takes nerve. But because of that war correspondent, because of his courage, we get an unprecedented view of the battle. A war correspondent is committed to reporting the facts. And in this section of the book of Revelation, John acts as God's war correspondent. He's reporting on a spiritual battle. In fact, the spiritual battle, the battle of the ages, the war between God and Satan and its culminating conflicts. You remember back in chapter 11, John is in Jerusalem. He's embedded with the two witnesses that God has sent, God's olive branch of peace to the world. But Satan's madman murders them in the streets. The treatment of these two men, the treatment they receive, reveals the world's moral and spiritual bankruptcy, their total bankruptcy. You know, it's fitting that God's war correspondent files his report in chapter 11. Again, in chapter 13, John goes behind enemy lines to bring us up close and personal to this emergent tyrant who slaughters the two witnesses. John calls him the beast. And 13 is a chilling chapter. When all the animosity against God in the world at the time is embodied in one person, it becomes scary. Satan's true motivations are revealed. But of all John's journalism, but of all these things that he writes, chapter 11 may just be the most important. For here John is embedded in a spiritual battle. He knows what's at play in chapters 11 and chapters 13. He knows that this is the culmination of a long-running conflict. The battle he's reporting on didn't just break out with the two witnesses in Jerusalem. No, no. This battle has been brewing from the beginning. John realizes that for us to really understand what's happening, we need some background on this battle. As John sees it at this point in Revelation, the earth is in peril. Life as we know it is being threatened. The tiny people of Israel are the focal point of the conflict. And the question that begs to be answered is, how did we get here? And this is where John takes a step back and he lays out for us an overview of history in chapter 12. Verse 1 reveals that the struggle of the ages begins with a woman. And for husbands who didn't marry a gal as wonderful as I did, this comes as no surprise. Anyway, chapter 12 opens. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now this is not just any woman. She's a lady. She's distinguished and prestigious. She's a spiritual debutante. And that's not all. She's also pregnant. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now here's the question. Who is this woman? 
Keep in mind, John wrote Revelation not just in the midst of a spiritual battle. His physical circumstances were also conflicted. Remember, John is a POW in a Roman penal colony. The evil emperor Domitian has tried to kill John. He tried to boil the dude in oil. The old coot miraculously survived. And thus John was banished to the rocky island of Patmos. Understand, as he writes the Revelation, he's surrounded by Roman guards. You know, prisoners, they they had no privacy rights. And thus their letters were subject to censorship. And John doesn't want anyone to think that what he's written is subversive. And so he disguises his message in symbols. Now John is a Hebrew. He's fluent in the Old Testament. And so the best way to decode his symbols is to refer back to the Hebrew Old Testament. And where in the Old Testament do we find a woman with this description? Genesis 37 verse 9 quotes the Hebrew forefather Joseph when he said, I have a dream, another, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. That's when Joseph's dad, the patriarch Jacob, who by the way, his name later was changed to Israel. That's when he asked Joseph, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed bow down to the earth before you? Joseph had 11 brothers. And in his dad's mind, they were all stars. That's why Jacob rightly saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars as a reference to his own family. To me, it's crystal clear, biblically speaking, the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is the Jewish people. A Bible teacher once told me, you can learn a lot about a person's entire theology by how they interpret the woman in Revelation chapter 12. And I've come to agree. There are some folks who interpret the woman of chapter 12 as the Virgin Mary. And since she turns out to be, her child turns out to be Jesus, it's understandable why Mary gets identified here. But Mary, understand, was a mother on earth. Notice the woman here in chapter 12, she's occupying heaven. Mary was never pregnant in heaven. She delivered her child on earth. Roman Catholics like to refer to Mary as the mother of God. But this is a title that the Bible never bestows. Mary mothered God's son on earth. In heaven, Mary is just one of many believers. She's a child of God, not the mother of God. Mary was a godly lady, certainly, but never make more of her than the Bible does. If you do, she'll be embarrassed. Well, other folks see this woman as the church. But this can't be. For the church didn't birth Jesus. Just the opposite occurred. Jesus is the one who birthed the church. You see, I believe strongly that this woman is none other than the people of Israel. John couches her here in unmistakable symbolism. From Genesis 39, Joseph's dream affirms her identity. Now, it's interesting. Humans stay pregnant for nine months, or at least they're supposed to. Rhinos, mother rhinoceros, stays pregnant for 15 months. How about that, ladies? Did you know elephants stay pregnant for 21 months? Ladies, be glad you're not an elephant. But realize the nation Israel was pregnant with promise for 4,000 years. 
God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, he promised to King David that through their collective lineage, a Savior would be born. Salvation would come through their descendant. And thus, Jesus was born of Jewish stock with his pedigree of promise. He was the child of Lady Israel. You know, it seems to me that you can usually tell when a woman gets pregnant. She radiates. A pregnant woman sparkles. A woman who's carrying a baby has a glow about her. You know, if I were the President of the United States, my first proclamation would be special treatment for all pregnant women. Indeed. Pregnant woman, women would get to park in handicapped parking spots in my administration. They would get to go to the head of all checkout lines. All OBGYN waiting rooms would be required to have chairs with extra padding just for pregnant moms. Pregnant women would get control of the TV remote control by decree of the president, except for in football season. Got to draw the line somewhere. If you know a pregnant mom, I hope you're treating her with extra special care. For that wasn't the case with this woman here in Revelation chapter 12. When she was ready to deliver, she was threatened by a devouring dragon. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. This appears like something coming out of Jurassic Park. What Steven Spielberg could do with a seven-headed dragon. My, oh, my. This woman has some scary company. Now, as you well know, God has a triune nature. He is one God who exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The true God is the great originator. But Satan, understand, is a copycat. He is an intimidator and an imitator and an impersonator. Satan's kingdom likes to come off like God's kingdom. He seeks to fulfill his ambitions under a trio of leaders. And in these next two chapters, chapters 12 and 13, they're introduced. These chapters present the unholy trinity. The dragon or Satan here in chapter 12. In chapter 13, we'll see the beast rising up out of the sea or the Antichrist. Then the beast coming up out of the earth. The Antichrist's evil minion, the false prophet. The seven heads and the ten horns are associated with this unholy trinity, especially the beast or the Antichrist. Later in Revelation 17 verse 7, we learn that the seven heads represent a geographical place. There are seven hills. And in the writings of antiquity, Rome was always referred to as the city on seven hills. Apparently, the political entity that Satan seizes control of and uses in these last days is a revival of Rome. It'll center in Europe. The ten horns represent a political base. These horns were seen by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7 verse 20. Evidently, this European or Roman confederacy that becomes Satan's end times power block will consist of ten nations or ten divisions. The seven diadems or laurel wreaths speak of the victor's crown. And evidently the authority and power wielded by Satan in this beast will be wrestled away from the nations. Notice in verse 4, John gives us a little of the dragon's history. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
Now, if you're still having trouble identifying the dragon, you can drop down to verse 9. For there, John refers to him by name. He says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. You remember the first time we see the devil is in Genesis. There he appears in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. And you know how he appears? He appears as a dragon. Now you say, wait a minute, Sandy, I I thought he came as a snake. Well, he did. But when the serpent gets cursed, what happens? He belly flops. God sentences him to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. We can infer that beforehand he must have had had legs. And a serpent with legs is what? It's a dragon. This is why Chinese restaurants creep me out. Well, the MSG they put in that stuff also does tricks on me. but, uh, But the restaurants creep me out because they're all decorated with dragons. If you know your Bible, that's the ancient symbol for Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 provide us background on Satan. He was formerly an angel, an archangel in fact, the archangel Lucifer. There we're told that he was this beautiful musical creature. Many people believe Lucifer was heaven's worship leader. That is, until pride entered his heart. At some point, he stopped worshiping God and he started worshiping himself. That's when God booted him off the worship team. Booted him out of heaven. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus assumes his own preexistence when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus, were you there? Indeed, he was. Jesus was there at the demotion of Lucifer. And it wasn't just Satan that fell. According to verse 4 here, we're told that he took a third of the stars of heaven with him. Now, the stars of heaven is a biblical idiom for angels. You can reference Revelation 1, verse 20, Job, verse 30, chapter 38, verse 7. But when Satan fell from heaven, a third of the angels joined his coup. Today, the fallen angels are nothing but the devil's demons. What a cast of characters we're finding in this chapter. What a cast of characters here in this battle of the ages. A dragon, a beast, the stars, and a pregnant lady. As most of you know, over the last year or so, Kathy and I have gone from zero grandkids to now four grandkids. Matter of fact, I hope my twins are going to be here the second service. I'll, I'll show them to you. We want to thank you so much for uh, your prayers for them. They're, they're doing great. But having been around pregnant ladies now for a good, good, good solid year, it means that I've learned a little bit about pregnant ladies. And here's the one thing that I've noticed. No matter how well a pregnant lady gets treated, the delivery day cannot come fast enough. I'll bet you've never met a woman who wasn't ready to birth her baby after nine months of pregnancy. A pregnant woman glows for sure, but she also grows, and that's the problem. Her limbs swell with water, and that baby starts jabbing his mom in the ribs, and she can't tie her shoes anymore. She starts to waddle like a duck. At times, those nine months seem like an eternity. But ladies, be glad you're not like the pregnant woman we find here in Revelation chapter 12, for she stays pregnant for 4,000 years, and she's treated harshly. 
Nothing goes smoothly here. This is a high-risk pregnancy and delivery. John tells us in verse 3, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. This dragon stalks the lady until she gives birth, and then he tries to pounce on her child. That's no way to treat a mom and her baby. The dragon, the Bible teaches us that the conflict between this dragon and the woman goes way back. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent, he made this statement. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity between the snake and the woman. That's true. Few women today like snakes. But here's where the plot thickens. He goes on and he says, and between your seed and her seed. Now, a woman doesn't have a seed. Obviously, the seed comes from the man. And this is why many Bible scholars interpret the idiom here, the seed of the woman, as Jesus' virgin birth. He was born without a man's help. He was uniquely the woman's seed. And thus, there will be perpetual enmity or hostility between Jesus and this serpent or this dragon. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 predicts that the battle will reach a climax. There we're told, Jesus shall bruise the serpent's head and he shall bruise Jesus' heel. This long-running conflict will end up bloody and violent. The serpent, the dragon, the devil will wound Jesus. He'll draw blood. But it won't be fatal. In the big picture, it's nothing but a heel bruise. It's Jesus who will wield the decisive blow. He'll throw the knockout punch. On the cross, Jesus threw down his heavy sandal and he crushed the serpent's head. Jesus shattered Satan's authority. And this is why Satan has worked so hard to wipe out the Messiah. Before he was born, that was all Satan wanted to do was to wipe out the promised seed. Very quickly after Genesis chapter 3, Satan went to work corrupting human hearts to the point where God regretted he had even created mankind. He'd become so sinful. And I'm sure the dragon squealed with glee when he heard of God's plan to destroy the world with water. The devil thought that he had drowned out all hope for mankind's salvation, for a Savior to be born. But God spared a man of faith, a man named Noah. And he kept alive hope For a world plagued with sin. When God narrowed the promise to a splinter of Noah's family, Israel, and the heirs of Abraham. Again, Satan went to work to destroy the promised seed. And he thought he had succeeded. The Red Sea was on one side. The revenge-seeking Egyptian army was on the other side. Surely the people of promise would be annihilated once and for all. But again, God worked a miracle. And he rolled back the waters. And the Israelites walked safely on dry ground. Hey, after the promise narrowed down to the lineage of David, numerous attacks were launched on the royal family. There was once this wicked queen, Athaliah. She nearly wiped out the promise when she tried to kill all of David's heirs. She didn't know that one of the boys, one of the sons, had been hidden away secretly. He later was brought to power by a priestly coup d'etat. I mean, you can go through... Jewish history, it's checkered with multiple near misses where Satan tried and yet failed to wipe out the promise before the child could be born, before the woman could give birth to the Messiah. And by the time we get down to Bethlehem, we see the battle has has had its casualties. The struggle has been a bloody one. 
You know, whenever we're in, we're in Israel, we always like to visit the olive wood store. And the best buys at the olive wood store are the nativity sets. They're great. How cool is it to purchase a nativity set that was carved in Bethlehem, to purchase it from Jerusalem, it was carved in Bethlehem, and you can bring it home and your family can enjoy it for generations to come. That's pretty cool. Most nativity sets, they come with a Mary and a Joseph and an angel and a couple of shepherds and a few barnyard animals. And if you're a really good haggler, if you're a really good haggler, you can even give a couple of camels thrown in. I've proved it. But I'll bet you have never seen a nativity display with a dragon, have you? And yet it's biblical. Here is the real nativity scene. If you were in heaven looking down on that first Christmas from a spiritual perspective, here's what you'd see. Verse 3, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The battle of the ages never negotiated a Christmas ceasefire. Messiah is born while a dragon with seven sets of sharp teeth stands nearby licking his chops. Satan couldn't stand the thought that he'd one day bow to this baby. One author pins, the dragon wants to eat the child so he doesn't have to kiss his feet. And sadly, it was this fiery dragon who inspired the evil King Herod to slaughter all the town's toddlers. You remember the story? You know, ironically, the very first Christmas-inspired song, you could say the inaugural Christmas carol, it was sung by Bethlehem's grieving moms. Matthew 2 verse 18 records their mourning. A voice was heard in Rama. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As John overviews the spiritual war of the ages, he correctly sees the birth of Jesus as the pivotal point in the battle. Apparently, Satan sensed it as well. And that's why he was in full dragon mode to resist Jesus' coming. This was the one victory that signaled the turning point in the whole war. You should think of Christmas as a beachhead. Christmas is Christianity's Normandy. As one author put it, the nativity was an all-out invasion on enemy-occupied territory. Every gun in the arsenal of darkness was aimed in the little baby's direction and yet he still triumphed. That little baby slipped behind enemy lines. If Satan could have thwarted Jesus' birth, he could have kept God from invading his own turf. If Jesus hadn't entered the world, all of Satan's gains would have been assured. Surely there were more skirmishes to come. The battle continued after Jesus' birth. You remember that mob of angry legalists? They tried to push Jesus off of a cliff there in Nazareth. Remember the demons? They stirred up a storm at sea in an attempt to drown him. Jewish religious leaders, they, they were plotting ways to kill him. Another King Herod befriended Jesus' friend John. I'm sorry, sorry, not didn't, didn't befriend him, beheaded him. Beheaded uh, his friend John. I, I think that was a warm-up for Jesus. Jews and Romans, they conspired to flog Jesus and crucify him. They even blocked up his grave with a stone. But as John sees it, when the male child was born at Christmas, this was the beginning of the end for Satan. When Je with Jesus in the world, it was only a matter of time now. 
the dominoes would start to fall. His sinless life, then his miracles, then his teachings, then his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension and the establishment of his church. It all led to Jesus' inevitable triumph when the man-child was born. Verse 5 tells us, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now here's language that comes right out of Psalm chapter 2. A messianic psalm. God is speaking of his coming king. He says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The child promised to Israel and born in Bethlehem will now rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is what all history is barreling toward. The kingdom of the Christ. When Jesus returns to earth, it'll be his way or the highway, friend. Allegiance will be mandatory. Jesus won't be running for office. He's not going to be campaigning for votes. It's a jungle out there, but trust me, Jesus is the king of the jungle. Ultimately, the male child will rule all the nations of the world. But what about the woman who birthed birthed the child? What will happen to the Jewish people? Well, John tells us in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now here John fast forwards from the time of Christ to the end of the age. Remember, this is an overview of the battle. He fast-forwards from 32 A.D. to a time still future. If this were a movie, suddenly a caption would come across the bottom of the screen that it would appear between verses 5 and 6 and it would read, Thousands of years later. That's what it would say. This time frame, 1,260 days, you remember this from chapter 11. We refer back to it, to to the previous chapter. There, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, he saw a final period of seven years in which God would wrap up his plans for his people Israel and the world at large. Daniel 9, remember, tells us that that period of time will start with a treaty. A Roman leader will strike a deal with the Jews. At that point, you can mark off 1,260 days or seven or three and a half years And then the second three and a half years to the day of Messiah's return. Daniel also tells us that a terrible deed will occur at the midpoint. At that 1,260 day mark, the leader Israel, the, the leader that Israel had trusted, he enters the temple and he desecrates God's altar. This violates the promise that he had made to the Jews. And the betrayal scares Lady Israel. We're told here she flees into the desert to a refuge that God has specifically prepared. She'll be supernaturally fed and protected for a final 42 months. Recall after the Hebrews exited Egypt. You remember God fed them in the wilderness for what? For 40 years. I'm sure he can handle 42 months. It'll be like Elijah. You remember when he was a fugitive from King Ahab? God hid him in the wilderness and he catered him two meals a day. He had the meals flown in on beak and talon. A flock of ravens delivered the bread and the meat. My point is, is if God can take care of Israel and his prophet, he can protect and provide for these future Jews as well. 
Now at the midpoint of this final seven years, whatever crime this Roman leader commits, it'll not only scare the lady on earth, but it'll cause turmoil in heaven. Notice verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now I'll bet you this is the moment that Michael has been awaiting for centuries. You know, Michael in the Bible is a warrior angel. He's one bad hombre. According to Daniel 12, verse 1, he's fiercely loyal to the Jews. And he's also tangled with the devil before, at least on two other occasions. Check out Daniel chapter 10 and Jude chapter 9. On top of that, Michael has had to listen to Satan whenever Satan has approached God's throne. For remember, Satan still has access to God's throne today. Just read Job chapters 1 and 2. He still comes before God's throne. And I'm sure Michael is weary of hearing Satan bring up stuff that has been blotted out by the blood of Jesus. I'm sure he's, he's tired of hearing Satan insult the grace of God and the cross of Christ. And I'll bet you Michael has just been biding his time. Every time Satan appears, Michael sort of mumbles under his breath, Lord, when can I take this chump out? But that's what's happening. Well, at the midpoint of this last final seven-year period, Satan will go too far. Revelation 13 will tell us that this partner, the partner of the dragon, this beast, he sets up his own image in the temple. And he claims to be God. And he requires the world to worship him. And this is when war breaks out in heaven. And what this war looks like, who knows? I mean, how do angels and demons lock horns and do combat? What happens when the bell rings, when the bout is between angels and demons? I'll bet you it's vicious and brutal. I bet it makes an MMA cage fight look like a ballet dance. I'll bet you that's what it looks like. It's a good thing here that Michael and his angels, loyal to God, they have Satan and his demons outnumbered two to one. That's a good thing. All I know is this. In 2 Kings 19, we find the story where a single angel kills 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. That's just one angel. I mean, angels have serious swag. Imagine a battle royale in heaven. Galactic heavyweights go toe-to-toe. Whatever occurs makes a Star Wars movie look like a dart throw. That's all I'm saying. And in the end, Michael's troops trump Satan's hellish forces. They kick Satan out of heaven once and for all. And from this point onward... A beat-up Satan, whenever he comes and swipes his pass to heaven, the monitor reads, access denied. He's been booted out. Verse 9 sums it up. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is the beginning of this great deceiver's unveiling. Satan will finally be exposed Over the last three and a half years of the great tribulation, the devil has lied and he's intimidated and he's manipulated for thousands of years. He has twisted God's word. He's added to it. He's taken from it. His lies have kept mankind blind to the truth. 
I hope this morning you're not under Satan's sway. I hope this morning you haven't been blinded by Satan. But you know what? If you haven't been immersed in God's word, there's a good chance that you are. We all need to be challenged with the truth of God's word. We need to filter every assumption that we've made about life and relationships and work and family through the filter of God's word. We don't want to fall prey to Satan's lies. Ephesians 4 verse 23 commands us, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. God is after transformed attitudes in his people. Not attitudes that have been tainted by Satan's lies and misconceptions. You know, in, verse four, in, in Isaiah chapter 14, there's a verse that speaks of Satan when we finally lay our eyes on him. You know what our reaction will be? Isaiah tells us, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? You know, when we finally see Satan, we'll say, is this the man? Is this the guy? Satan, by that point, will be a defeated foe. He was stripped of his power on the cross. Satan has become puny and feeble through the work of Jesus. When we see him, it will suddenly dawn on us that the only power Satan had all along is the power that you and I gave him. We allowed the bully to push us around because we believed his lies and we lacked the faith to resist him. That's why if you have been blinded to the truth, it's time that you sober yourself and begin to immerse your mind in the word of God. Now obviously no one in heaven is crying over Satan's banishment. In verse 10, heaven erupts in joy and praise. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The name Satan means adversary. The word devil means accuser. Satan is a condemnation junkie. That's what he is. Did you know God is rich in mercy? Whereas the devil is quick to remind us of our sin. The devil stirs up guilt where God offers grace. Satan can bury you under an avalanche of condemnation the moment God wants to forgive you. Hey, Jesus was buried so that you and I don't have to be. He died in our place so that God could pardon us forever. Hey, I hang my hope on Romans 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't let Satan use your failure to destroy your faith. Here's a great, great quote to memorize. Whenever the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Our keys to victory here are found in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Now here's how you build a strong faith. Here's how you build a faith that overcomes the devil's lies and condemnation. You cultivate three attitudes. First of all, you lean on the blood of the Lamb. Are you trusting this morning in the blood of the Lamb? God's power is in the blood. You know, sin is real, and the death that it causes is real. 
It's not just theoretical, it's real. And the antidote is just as real. The power's in the blood. You know, if you were a Jew, you would have known this in your gut. You know, each time you sinned, you would have had to bring a little lamb down to the temple. And you would watch the priest confess your sin over the head of this little lamb and then take a meat cleaver and slit the animal's throat. That lamb was innocent. You're the one that sinned, not the lamb. But you'd have to sit there and you'd have to watch it whimper and buckle and drop dead. I hope you're happy with the sin that you've committed You know, a Jew raised in the temple would never take that sin lightly. He was well aware of the necessity of blood. That that all sin necessitated death. And the same is true with the blood of Jesus. We have our good days, we have our bad days, but it's the blood of Christ on which we stand. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that's sufficient to cover our sin. That's why a strong faith trusts in the blood. And not in itself. Second attitude that helped them overcome was the word of their testimony. You know, it's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. I still remember the day, the time, the exact place when I knelt down and committed my life to Jesus Christ. It's a landmark in my life. I I recall it often. I mean, I was there. I know it was real. There's no denying a person's testimony. But you see, without a time and a place, you have no landmarks. You'll wander from where you've been. You'll grow confused about who you are and where you're headed. This is why every Christian needs to nail down their testimony. They need to be able to articulate where they stand. Perhaps this morning you've never actually made that commitment of your life to Christ. It's kind of a nebulous thing. Well, are you a Christian? Do you trust? Well, yeah, I do. Well, when did you become a Christian? Well, you don't have a time. You don't have a place. Maybe this morning you can come forward and you can have a time and a place here today. And the third attitude that makes a strong faith is a selfless life. We're told they did not love their lives to the death. Overcomers know that there's something more vital than life. That pleasing Jesus, that glorifying God is far more important than even our next breath. That treasure in heaven and the power of the word and the souls of the people around us are of greater worth than what we can get out of this life. It's been said, you don't start living until you're first ready to die. Knowing what matters most helps us overcome. Well, a crowd now gathers in heaven. These are the men and women who've struggled with Satan in triumph. And that's why they know what to expect from him. Verse 12. They say, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. This is not a good time to be alive on the planet. From here on out, Satan goes on the warpath. A typically unbridled Satan now flies totally off the chain. The guy goes nuts. I mean, you think the devil is vile and vicious right now? You just wait until Michael and the angels boot him out of heaven. He's going to start acting like a death row escapee with nothing to lose. Seething, frothing with resentment, 
Satan will try to strike back at God as viciously and violently as he possibly can. He's going to go for the juggler. He's going to try to hit God where it hurts the most. And guess where he aims? Hey, if you want to hurt me, it's pretty easy. Let's go after my kids. I'd die a thousand deaths before I'd see any harm come to my children. And this becomes Satan's vengeful strategy. He goes after God's kids still left on the earth, the Jews, the Jewish people. You see, I believe all forms of prejudice and bigotry are sinful. But in my opinion, there's something particularly sinister about anti-Semiticism. Satan hates whoever God loves. The devil crucified Jesus. Now Jesus is in heaven. He's out of Satan's reach. He persecuted the church and still does today. But the church at this point has been raptured. They're out of Satan's reach. Now that the Lord and his church are no longer vulnerable, guess who Satan zeroes in on? He zeroes in on the people group to whom God has favored in the past and will in the future, the Jews. Satan will try to destroy the woman who birthed the male child. Satan's no gentleman. He tries to rough up a woman. Lady Israel, don't you know you don't hit girls? But this is what we're told in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, notice what he does. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. His first evil reflex is to attack God's people Israel. You remember what Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 24, verse 16. He said, when you see the Antichrist defile the temple, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Literally, get out of Dodge. Run for the hills. For terrible persecution is on the horizon. Verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. God will give her wings to protect herself. With speed and agility, the Jews will vacate Jerusalem. Some folks identify a great eagle as a first century description of a modern day military transport plane. Perhaps the Jews get airlifted out of Jerusalem. There is a passage that may identify the location of this end times hideout that God has prepared for the Jews. Isaiah 16 verses 3 and 5 predict, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. In that chapter, Isaiah 16, the prophet also mentions the Moabite city of Selah, or Petra. You've seen this city if you've ever watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Petra was the backdrop used for the movie's final scenes. The city of Petra is in a valley about a mile square, and it's secluded because of the canyon that serves as its entrance. This canyon is a mile long, but it's only a few feet wide. And its narrowness is what makes the city so easily defensible. This may be the wilderness hideout where God keeps the Jews out of Satan's reach during this last half of this terrible time in the future. Certainly, it's in this wilderness somewhere that the woman, we're told, is nourished. And he gives us the time frame again for a time and times And half a time. Now here's a third way John earmarks the same time frame. He's he's talked about 1,260 days. He's talked about 42 months. And now he uses a familiar Hebrew idiom, a phrase that equals three and a half years. You got a time and you got 
times, which is two more, and you got a half a time. And, and in the Hebrew uh, vernacular, that's three and a half years. God will protect the Jews for these three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. And yet after the Jews' evacuation, Satan opts for plan B, verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Another biblical idiom, a flood, was often used as an invading army. And thus it could be that Antichrist's genocide squad is sent to Petra to try to exterminate the Jews who dared to flee. We'll talk more about this sinister person, the Antichrist, next week. He'll come to power as a so-called friend of the Jews. Instead, he'll turn into a Hitler type that tries to annihilate them. In verse 16, God again comes to their rescue. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood with the dragon, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Sounds like a Middle East earthquake at the right time in the right place. A fissure in the earth's crust to rescue the Jews. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we've mentioned, there will be Gentiles saved during the great tribulation. And they too will be a target for great hardship. After the dragon fails to spill Jewish blood, he'll go after anybody who's embraced Jesus as the Christ. And you see, this is John's point. Until Jesus returns, there will always be a battle raging. You and I are part of this battle. There's always a battle raging. This war is nothing new. And it'll be over soon enough. Right now, what do we need to do? We need to trust in the blood of Jesus. That's what we need to do. And we need to depend on the word of our testimony. And we need to settle what matters most. We we need to be willing to sacrifice our life for the things that count. We need to overcome. It's a jungle out there. But Jesus is the king of the jungle. You'll see. Father, thank you for your love for us. And for your goodness toward us. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you, who's never given their life to you, Lord, I pray that they would settle that today. Lord, that they could nail down a a tent peg, a landmark. That they could say, this was the day, this was the time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We ask that you bless us, Lord, as as we live our lives, as we seek to be a witness to this world Lord, this world is headed for perilous times. Lord, help us to be a a ray of hope now and point people to Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in, in your wonderful name. Amen.